The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Turn to Luke chapter 6. Let me read this text to you and then we'll pray again and uh, take a look at it. This is a wonderful passage of scripture that talks to us about one of the most important things in our lives, and that is how to live in the kingdom of God as it is presently uh, present and and we are a part of it. So if you'll turn to Luke 6, and we're going to begin reading from from verse 19. Uh, We're going to be looking at 20 through the end of the chapter just very lightly, but I want to set up the context. In verse 19, this is what is happening, and this is why Jesus says what he says that follows. In verse 19, it says, after they had come, Jesus had come down to this large flat area and he began teaching the people. This is what precipitated what he taught them. It says, and all the people were trying to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. This is the power of Christ, the Messiah. Power was coming from him and healing everyone that came near him and touched him. And then he goes on to give this teaching. And turning his gaze toward his disciples, because there was a lot of other people there besides his disciples, turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. He's, he's not saying some of you are in this condition. He says this is, this is the condition of his disciples as he talks to them. Verse 23, he says, Be glad in that day and leap for joy when people speak badly of you and ostracize you. He says, Be, be glad in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way, their fathers used to treat the prophets. And now he gives these woes, which are corresponding to those three, those four sentences, those four blessings that he just gave to his disciples. Now he speaks to the others who are there. And he says to them, but woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. But I say to you who hear, that is you believers, by the way, uh, Isaiah chapter 50 in verse 7 in the right translation says... (laughs) He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. And so when he says to them, you who have ears, he's talking about his followers, his disciples, because they've, they've experienced the Spirit's work in their heart. And so he says, I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, slaps you on the cheek, Offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you. 
And whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. This is only to his disciples. Are you a disciple? Then this is to you. He says in verse 31, treat others the way you want to be. You want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even the sinners, even those in rebellion against God, love those who love them. If you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? For even the sinners do the same. If you lend to those whom you expect to receive, from those whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. In other words, when you do this, you'll be just like your Father in heaven. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, means condemn, and you will not be judged, and do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour it into your lap, a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. And he also spoke a parable to them. And he speaks parables into, in order to make the application of what he is teaching clear to them. And this is the parable. A blind man cannot guide a blind man, can he? Will they not both fall into a pit? A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone after he has been fully trained will be like his teacher. Every disciple, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. And that's Jesus. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that's in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. The good man out of the good treasure of the heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of, an evil tre- out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. His mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. Why do you call me Lord? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and does not, has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation. And the torrent burst against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you that your word confronts us. I'm so grateful when I come to the word of God. I always go away affected by what you say to us. And so we pray that the Holy Spirit would bring the message of this text to bear upon our hearts today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, 
what I, the title of this sermon, I think, is, yeah, Life in the Kingdom. I changed the title three times, Life in the Kingdom. Um, what's the, what is this text about? Well, it's really about the kingdom of God. But then what does it mean? Well, he is telling them how to get into the, he's telling them how to live in the kingdom, not how to get into the kingdom, because it's clear that those who hear are in the kingdom. They have been transformed by the work of the spirit and they are members of this kingdom. But why does he have, why does he have to explain this? Well, he has to explain this, what we've just read, because the most unlikely, unworthy recipients of the kingdom, that is the poor, and I'll tell you what that word means in just a second, and the hungry and the mourning and the hated have been brought into the kingdom. Simon and Garfunkel had a song called The Blessed. And it was based upon these Beatitudes here and in the Sermon on the Mount. They're called Beatitudes because the Latin word beatus means blessed. And so there's these expressions of blessing. Blessed are those to whom the kingdom of God has come is what Jesus is saying here. Then he gives these woes, woes to those, those who have it all now, but they're not in the kingdom. And then in, in uh, verses 24 and 26, he gives these woes. And then in verses 27 through 38, he gives instruction to those who hear. That is, those who have entered into the kingdom. The Spirit of God has opened their eyes. They've been given the ear of a disciple. And they've heard the message and they've responded in faith. So first of all, we need to examine the kingdom and then these beatitudes and finally the king's commands. It's going to take us a couple of weeks on that. These commands uh, give to whoever asks you. Are you kidding? Oh, this is just the orders of the king of the kingdom we are part of. So I guess you don't really have to worry about it. This is Paul Simon's uh, lyrics. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit. Blessed is the lamb whose blood flows. Blessed are the sat upon, spat upon, ratted on. And then he keeps, the refrain is, O Lord, why have you forsaken me? If you're bringing these kind of people into the kingdom, why don't you bring somebody like me who isn't poor or hungry? Why has God brought these into the kingdom? The word poor here, uh, it's kind of an inadequate uh, def- uh, expression for us because we think of somebody poor as not having what they need. But the word poor here, it's used in Galatians 4.9. You heard it, and it's translated worthless, of no benefit. I heard a story about a guy who went down to Mexico, was teaching in northern Mexico, and, and he was holding these house meetings. And he said what he kept on doing was he would read a text, and then he would ask them, what they thought about it. He was trying to get some kind of response from them. And they never answered. And finally somebody explained to him, you have to understand, poor people don't think you want to hear what they have to say. And that's kind of the sense of this word here. Blessed are the poor. These people who had nothing to recommend them. You know, we always, we like to uh, network with people of influence in our lives, maybe in our our profession or whatever, because maybe uh, we can receive something from them that would be helpful. I don't know anybody who networks with homeless people. Um, I still remember the the policeman in Brentwood who told me, because we had some people sleeping in our garage, some homeless people, a couple, and uh, 
And he says to me, well, you know, it's not really against the law to be homeless. But it is a nuisance, isn't it? He says. (laughs) And I got very convicted. Because here Jesus says that it is those who are poor, who have nothing to recommend them, that have been brought into the kingdom. And they are experiencing the power of the kingdom at this point in time. Now, I need to explain some about the kingdom because there's a lot of misunderstandings about the kingdom of God. We know there's a future tense of the kingdom. There's the millennial kingdom, for example. And when we pray, as you know, if we pray the Lord's prayer, we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we could say, well, I know what the kingdom of God is. That's when God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. But notice, that's the Father's kingdom. But in Colossians 1.13, it says, You and I were transferred out of the kingdom of darkness where we couldn't see the truth about Christ, and we were transferred into the kingdom of his dear Son. The kingdom of his dear Son is the kingdom that we are a part of right now, and it's, a, it's the kingdom that these people have been brought into. Now, there's a future tense of the kingdom of God that's coming. When everything evil and wrong is going to be completely banished from the face of the earth. But have you noticed that hasn't taken place yet? That you've been brought into the kingdom and you're still living in a fallen world. And so the king of this kingdom, this present tense of the kingdom that we are experiencing now, has given you commandments and they sound outrageous unless he is really the king and he's the one who's in charge of life in the kingdom. That he actually has the power and the authority to order us to do, to command us to do what seems like absolute nonsense. And he's the one who is going to order our lives and our experiences in a way that's going to glorify God. And so what we have here is really an an interesting thing because he's talking about the kingdom of God. As you know, Uh, in the Gospels, when Jesus came, he came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And when John the Baptist came before him, he became preaching the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom of God. And so there's a lot said in the New Testament about the kingdom of God, and especially about the kingdom of God as we are experiencing it now as the people of God. Now, Jesus, because he did come preaching the kingdom of God and called people to himself, he also demonstrated the power of the kingdom and what he did. He actually came preaching the kingdom and he performed signs and wonders to demonstrate the fact that he had authority and power. Listen to this. When he sends his disciples out to take the gospel to to the nation of Israel... This is the instruction he gives them in Luke ten nine. He says, and heal those in it, the house that you are brought into, heal those in it who are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. In other words, the fact that they were healed was evidence that the kingdom had come near to them. In Luke chapter 11, listen to this, he was casting out a demon and it was mute. That is, it caused the person to be mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, 
Some of them, his enemies said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. Others to test him were demanding of him a sign from heaven. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to them, just listen to the, the wisdom of Jesus. Jesus says to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? In other words, the prophets and the men that God empowered to cast out demons. Who are they casting the demons out by? So they will be your judges. But then get this. Listen to this statement. Jesus says, but if I cast out demons by the finger of God then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, he calls it the finger of God because God's power is immeasurable. And so when he does the most powerful thing, it's like you moving your finger in the sense that it does not exert him. I've been working out in our pastors the last few days and uh, because of the grass, you know how this winter was, and man, all of a sudden I got... It's five foot tall grass out there. Well, I call it grass. It's weeds. And uh, so I've been out there mowing and I have to ride the tractor and I get off and I'll do some mowing with a string mower, cleaning things up. I would get so tired in that heat that I actually didn't think I was going to make it back to the house. In fact, a couple times uh, as I'm coming back to the house, I laid down in the shade on the grass And I thought, I better not do this because if somebody drives up and sees me laying here, they're going to think I had a heart attack. They're going to call an ambulance. I was just tired, exhausted. But God doesn't get exhausted. He doesn't get exhausted. And so Jesus says, if I heal you, and it's by the finger of God, he says, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God has come upon you. You're seeing the exercise of God's power through his son. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. Now, Jesus is going to use this as a picture of him coming and setting his people free. He's like a man who comes into a house that's well guarded. He ties up the strong man, then he sets the prisoners free. He is able to deliver us from the hold of Satan on those who do not believe. When God sets you free, he sets you free from bondage to Satan who, caused, who was influencing you to believe the lie. What's the lie? Romans 4.25 says the lie is that you should worship and serve the creature instead of the creator. And you know who the creature is? It's you. (laughs) That what we should do is serve ourselves instead of serving the creator. And so Satan had us held in his grip. The whole world lies in the evil one, John says in 1 John 5. And the word lies in the evil one means he's rocking them to sleep. He doesn't want you to believe the gospel. He doesn't want you to believe in the power of God and the power of Jesus Christ. He wants you just to doze off and enjoy your selfishness. Now, the kingdom, 
that's mentioned here in verse 20 is the kingdom manifested by the presence of the king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he manifests his power by healing, raising the dead, doing miraculous things. But we're told in First Corinthians, I mean in Colossians 1.13, that you and I as believers in Jesus Christ at this time, while Jesus is physically absent, you can't see him because he is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. But we were transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. And so that's the present manifestation of the kingdom. Now it's called various things in different places. And it's, it's sometimes referred to as the already not yet kingdom. And here's why. The now and not yet kingdom. It comes from First John chapter 3, verse 2, when John says, Beloved, we are now children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. So this is the now but not yet form of the kingdom. We live under the rule of Christ now, but we don't see him. But we believe him. And as Peter told those people he was writing to in First Peter, even though you don't see him and you love him, and even though you're not seeing him now, but believing in him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. In other words, a relationship with Christ is something that touches you at the deepest level of your affections. A person who's been born again has experienced the deep, profound feelings of love for the love of God for themselves and their love for Jesus Christ and the Father. That's one of the evidences of being born again. It's our affections have been touched by the reality of who Christ is. So being in the kingdom is living under the king's rule. It's also called a couple of other things. For example, in Romans chapter 5, uh, verse 2, and also in 1 Peter five twelve, it's called the fact that we are ensphered in grace. We have been brought into this grace in which we stand. As Peter said, this is the grace of God. Stand firm in it. The kingdom, the present form of the kingdom, the kingdom of God's beloved son, is a place of grace. It's where God deals with us with grace. It's the reason he still loves you today. Because he's a God of grace. Oh, he knows the truth about you. He knows what's been going on in your life. But he loves you because you are in this sphere of grace. And he gives himself to you because of his love for you. And then it's living in the spirit, according to Romans 8. Living in the kingdom of God, the present form of the kingdom of God is living in the spirit instead of the flesh. And so even though we're not able to see him right now, we're able to, our eyes have been open, our ears have been open, we have ears to hear. And we can actually hear him through his word as he speaks to us. And it's the command of the one who's loved us and laid down his life for us. In verse 20 of this of uh, Luke 6, Jesus begins to explain what everyone there had seen happen in verse 19. The kingdom of God had come upon the poor, the hungry, the mourning, the most unlikely targets of the kingdom of God. Why would God bring people like that into the kingdom? Because the measure of the kingdom is the greatness of God and his power. Isn't it amazing how God saves 
the people that he does. 20 plus years after this, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians. And this is what he said to them. These are believers at Corinth. He says to them, consider your calling. That is the people that make up the church. He says, consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things. He's talking about people, by the way. This isn't complimentary. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. Why did he do this? Here's what he says. So that no man may boast before God. I still remember a time a lady came to me. This is when we were over at uh, Liberty and said, you know, there's some people visiting here today. You need to meet them. If we could get these people to become members of our church, it would be wonderful. I said, really? She goes, yeah. I said, why? He says, they're very rich. And we need money to build that building. This was a long time ago. And I said to her, you know, you've got to be kidding me. You have to be kidding me. You do understand that it's not the riches of men that's going to accomplish the work of God. God owns a cattle on a thousand hills. There is no lack in God for meeting the needs of his people. You've learned that, right? Second Corinthians 8 says, if you want to give, God will make it possible for you to give. He'll give you what you need to give. That's not the prosperity gospel. That's the grace gospel. God will not only meet your needs, he will make you a conduit through which he can pour his resources and touch the lives of other people. That's his great promise to us. So there's some things about the kingdom that were confusing for those who first heard about it and talked about it the most. You see, the, the many Jews assumed it would mean that they would be exalted above all the other people groups in the world. And here Jesus says, he, he's brought these poor people into the kingdom, and he says, blessed are you who are poor. They were really poor. But he's not saying, hey, you want to really get God's blessing? Get poor. I was teaching a class a couple years ago at a master's college extension at North Creek. And this guy in the class got really upset about something he called the poverty gospel. And I didn't know what he was talking about. He was talking about how much he hated this idea, the, the poverty gospel. I said, what is the poverty gospel? He goes, you know, it's that stuff that Francis Chan and David Platt say. I said, I don't think that's what they're saying, that you have to become poor in order to receive God's blessing. I think they are saying that you don't have to worry about helping people because God will empower you to give. You don't have to get poor in order for God to love you. He's loved you the way you are and you're all rich. Right? I mean, we really are uh, people, and by the world's standards, everybody in this room is rich. Well, except maybe for your children sitting there and then you're so stingy you won't buy them a new car, but... um, (laughs) We're rich, aren't we? And God has brought us into the kingdom. But the point here is, he is showing that it's God who brings people into the kingdom. 
You know why you're saved today, why you're in the kingdom of God? is because God did it. So if you have people you love and you'd love to see them come to faith in Christ, here's the most important thing you can do. Pray to the Lord of the harvest and pray that God would call them into his kingdom. Talk to God about them because he's the one who can save. He's the one who can draw people to himself. Now, he can use you, and we want to be used, but it's God who must make this appointment. It's God who must draw a person to salvation. God's the one who has to draw them, and they come to the place where they see, see that their greatest need is Christ. You can tell them that a million times, and they could scoff at you. But if God ever gives them an ear to hear they will hear this gospel message. Now, what's really striking about this is what the Jews thought they were going to see with the kingdom because Jesus comes on the scene and all of his followers are saying, he's the Messiah. He's the king. The king is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. But it turns out to be an upside-down kingdom. And by that I mean... The reason it's upside-down kingdom is because it's shaped by the incarnation. Where did the king come from? Came from heaven. He came from heaven. He came from the most glorious place there is. The third heaven, the Bible speaks of as the place where God dwells. He was in the presence of the Father from all eternity, and he empties himself And he takes on the role of a servant and comes into the world to save us. And because of that, the kingdom of God in its present form is an upside-down kingdom. We follow in his steps. He was rich, but he came poor. He was a king, but he came to serve. Uh, He was the greatest of all, not Muhammad Ali, Jesus but he made himself the servant of all. Isn't that something? I was reading this story the other day about an evangelist who uh, approached Muhammad Ali at his home, went to his home, knocked on the door, had a conversation with him. He invited him in, he went in, he starts talking about the Lord. And he says, I don't need your Jesus. Your Jesus is is the God of the white man. And so he just starts telling him how much he would love to see him come to believe Christ and come to know Christ, that he's the, he's the God of all men. And he begins to manifest love for him, <laughs> for this black Muslim. And Ali says to him, you know, if somebody like you had talked to me before I became a Muslim, I probably would have not. I would, probably would have became a Christian. <laughs> well, <laughs> I thought what was striking about that is Because we live under the rule of the king, we have to approach people the way the king approached people. And he loved people. And he showed love to people. He manifested love to people who were his enemies. And that's why he's commanded you to love your enemies. Isn't that amazing? It's an upside-down kingdom. Though he was in the form of God, he did not think it was equality to be equal with God, something that he had to grasp, hold on to, and use for his own benefit, but he empties himself, taking on the form of a servant. 
And he comes into the world and he ends up dying a criminal's death for us as a felon in order to save us. And so because he's the king of this kingdom we are in, we are called to do the same thing, to humble ourselves. You remember when Jesus said, even the son of man, and that's the highest title of Jesus. And it was his favorite title, the son of man. It comes out of Daniel 7. And he says, even the Son of Man did not come to, to be served. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. He served you by going to the cross for you and giving you life indeed. And so that's the kind of kingdom we live in. Jesus triumphed over sin not by taking up power, but by serving sacrificially in the garden before he's arrested. And if you remember, he prayed, Lord, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me without me drinking it. And then he stops right in the middle of the sentence and he says, oh, but not my will, your will be done. He came to serve. And so if you're a member of the kingdom of God, you're under the rule of the king, the Lord Jesus Christ, then he's called us to live the same way that he lived when he came to save us. But not only is it an upside-down kingdom, it's an inside-out kingdom because it's shaped by the cross. You see, if you look at any other religion, look at religions. Christianity is really not a religion, but we're considered a religion. Look at all the other religions, and you find a system that says you've got to clean up your act. You've got to obey the God, and then finally you'll be able to become a partaker of this God once you've lived your perfect life. And what the gospel says is that's totally backwards. What God does, he starts on the inside of you. He puts his spirit in you. Christ comes to live within you. Even the Father is said to be in you. And he begins to change us. And he fills our hearts with gratitude and joy over what he's done for us, and we begin to serve him. Not because we have to to get to heaven. We've already been justified, right? We've been declared righteous. We know we have a perfect standing before God. Why do we want to live for him? Because our hearts are filled with gratitude and joy for what he's done for us. So it's an inside job. It's inside out. It starts on the inside and it, it ends up producing good works, but those good works are not in order for us to get to heaven. Those good works are an expression of our joy and our gratitude in God. It's why it's great to be around Christians because Christians are so, as a whole, Christians are so generous and loving and giving. Why is that? Because God has begun a good work inside of them and he's able to complete it and he's gonna complete it. So he's made a start in us. And then the third thing is this kingdom is an already not yet kingdom, as we've mentioned before, because of the resurrection. What Jesus did by, by being raised from the dead, it was a declaration that God has brought the day of judgment forward to that moment when you believed and you were declared to be absolutely righteous in the eyes of God because you've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so we're living in a kingdom in which we are already right with God. In 2 Peter 1, uh, Peter says that we have become partakers of the divine nature. 
The word partaker is the word koinonia, fellowship. Well, what he was doing was he was stealing from the pagans. The pagans had this idea. The pagan religions, this is the way they worked. If you live a perfect life before your king, if you, your God, if you submit to this God, at the end, you'll become a partaker of the divine nature. And Peter says, no, in Christianity, it starts with this. When you put faith in Christ and you're joined to Christ, you become a partaker of the divine nature, a fellowshipper of the triune God. You begin to experience eternal life. And you remember in John 17, 3, uh, Jesus says, as he's praying to the Father for us, and he says, uh, he talks about eternal life. We've been given eternal life. And he says, and this is eternal life, or this is the purpose, this is the nature of eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So we have come to know already at this time in the kingdom of God, in the history of the kingdom of God, we have come to experience a personal knowing, a personal relationship with the living God. Now, the next section in verses 20 through 26, he gives us the Beatitudes and the woes. Notice in verse 20, blessed are you who are poor. And then in verse 24, woe to you who are rich. Now, he's not saying it's bad to be rich and it's good to be poor. What he's saying is he's talking to those who are in the kingdom and they're poor. Because he's demonstrating something. God doesn't bring people into the kingdom because they've learned how to live some way. He's brought them into the kingdom out of his grace. And so these poor, worthless people in the eyes of everyone else, even though they're poor, they are blessed right now because they have the kingdom of God. But the rich, those outside the kingdom, even though they're rich in this world, he says, woe to you who are rich. And then he says in verse 21, blessed are you who hunger now. These are poor folks and hungry, but they've been brought into the kingdom. He says, you're going to be satisfied. God's going to meet your need. But then he says, woe to you who are well fed now. Because you're not in the kingdom. And then in verse 21, next, the last part of verse 21, he says, blessed are you who weep now. You're mourning. Your heart's broken. That's a common thing among people who are in the kingdom. We, we have the same kind of troubles that others have. We have our hearts broken. And we weep and we mourn. But he said, you're blessed if you're in the kingdom, even though you're mourning. Does being in the kingdom mean all the mourning is gone? M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G? No. No, we're going to hurt and we're going to mourn and we're going to grieve over things. We're going to have people we love who just won't hear the gospel, no matter what we do. And we mourn over that. But we're blessed because we're in the kingdom. And then he says... He says, woe to you who laugh now, because you're going to weep in the future at the judgment of God. And then finally, in verse 22, he says, blessed are you who, when men hate you, when men hate you, you're blessed. Because he said that's what they did to the prophets. And so if you're in the kingdom and people in the world hate you, you're blessed because you're in the kingdom. But then he says, woe, in verse 26, woe to you when all men speak well of you. Because that's what they did to the false prophets. So we now live in light of that future reality. Remember what Paul said that people were saying about the Thessalonians when 
the word got out about them. It says, they, uh, he says, I don't have to tell anybody about you. We're getting the word back about the effect of the gospel on your life. How you turn from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son who is coming to save you from the wrath that's going to fall in this world. And so we live in anticipation of his second coming. Well, uh, we live in, in light of that future reality. And so what are we to do in the meantime? Well, we are to evangelize, that is, share the gospel. Second Corinthians 5.20 says you've all been made ambassadors of Christ. You're spokesmen for Christ. The word ambassador, like envoy, is the French form of the word. Is, it's very similar to apostle. You've been sent with this glorious message that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And if you believe on him, he'll bring you into the kingdom. He'll wrap you up with his grace and he'll give you a perfect standing before God and he'll give you a new heart. So we, we evangelize, we, we, we preach the, the gospel, we're ambassadors of Christ, that's why we're waiting. Why hasn't he taken you home yet? I've had a couple of people ask me that. Why hasn't, well, I haven't asked that. They ask, why haven't you retired? <clears throat> I'm not tired yet. I was tired the other day though. But what are we doing between the time that he justified us until we are glorified, our lifetime? Well, we preach the gospel and we worship. We worship. Do you, you realize that is the most amazing thing that's happened to you? You have become a worshiper of the living God. You actually have access to the throne room of God. You can go before God and extol his name and he hears you. You can sing these songs from your heart, and he hears you, and he delights in your worship because he's made you worshipers. That's your purpose in life. And we love our neighbors, and we seek their welfare. That's what we're supposed to be doing until Jesus comes or until we go home to be with the Lord. So it's an upside-down kingdom, an inside-out kingdom, an already-not-yet kingdom. And it's a great blessing. And that's why he gives these beatitudes. We are a blessed people who are in the kingdom of God. And then he gives commands in verses 27 through 49. I've already read this. Let me, let me twist the knife. Listen to what he says. I say to you who hear. In other words, you're people who have who have an ear to hear. We could go through the Bible and talk about how God has promised to give his people ears to hear, eyes to see, a heart to understand, a heart to believe. And that's what he's done for you. He's given you an ear to hear. Over in Revelation, when, he, when, he, when Jesus speaks to the seven churches, at the end of every, every time he introduces himself to them, he says, let him who... Let him hear. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. He repeats this seven times. And so he says to you, you've been given an ear. Are you listening? Are you listening to him? Do you come to his word and do you listen to what he's saying to you? I just want to mention a couple things about his commands. How do we enter the kingdom of God? Well, you have to be born again. That's what he told Nicodemus, remember? 
in John 3. He says you have to be born again. Because Nicodemus was a teacher. He was a well-known teacher. In fact, Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel. So he, was, he had a prominent position. He knew the Bible, the, the Old Testament scriptures. And, and he says to Jesus, we know you must have come from God because of the, the things you do and the things you say. And Jesus says, you can't see the kingdom and you can't enter the kingdom until you're born again. Born again. Born of the Spirit. That's what being saved means. It means being born again. It doesn't mean that you've adopted a new life or you've, you've come to believe certain doctrines. It means you've been born of the Spirit. He gives you new life. Jesus comes to live within you. And that's what, that's what has to happen for us to enter into the kingdom of God. The new birth. Now there's future, as, future forms of the kingdom coming. There's a millennial kingdom and then there's the eternal kingdom. The new Jerusalem is going to come down out of heaven to this earth and God's going to dwell among his people. But the present form of the kingdom, the kingdom of his dear son, is what we are experiencing right now. And the only way we can come to experience this is through the new birth, through being born of the Spirit. And you remember Nicodemus, he says, well, how can a man, an adult man, be born again? Can he enter his mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus goes on to explain, it's the work of the Spirit. The Spirit gives you a spiritual birth. Back in the first chapter of John, he says, all those who receive Christ... We're born not of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. He brings this new birth and we enter into the kingdom. But how do we live in the kingdom? How are we supposed to live in the kingdom? Living in the kingdom, first of all, is obeying the king. I love the way that Paul puts this in Romans chapter 8, verse 2. He says that we've been set free from the law of sin and death. Because we now live under the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Now, to just cut to the chase, what that means is the, the, the commandments of Christ that come through his spirit to those who are born of the spirit, his commandments are not burdensome. They are actually energy producing. They actually, not only when you find out what God wants you to do, it actually energizes you to do it. The Holy Spirit energizes you to do it. So don't be afraid of learning too many of the commands of Christ. You know, we're told that when we make disciples, we're supposed to teach them to obey all that he's commanded. Do you know two of his commandments? Or three? Or five? Well, he's told us to to teach others to obey his commandments. You know, he, he tells us, for example, to tell men who are married... God, the, the, the Lord, the, the king of the kingdom of God commands you to love your wife the way he loved the church and gave himself up for her. He commands you to do that. That's not an option. It isn't that, you know, most of us got, I got married really young. I was 19 years old when I got married, but don't tell anybody. And I had no clue what I was doing. I didn't know that if they would have told me, you know what this means? This means you have to love your wife the way Christ loved the church. I might have said, I probably should put this off for a while. But I found out later that's what the king commanded. And guess what? It was energizing. And all of his commandments are energizing. We've been called to obey his commandments. Now, 
this really reveals what true discipleship is. Discipleship is being a learner, but it's, it's being a follower of Christ, an apprentice of Christ. It's following him and learning how to live in this kingdom by following him. In Luke 6.27, notice it says, But I say to you who hear. Who's he talking to? He's talking to his disciples because they've been given an ear to hear. He says to his disciples, I say to you who hear, love your enemies. If you don't have, if you're sitting here today and you don't have an ear to hear, then just, you go ahead and put your fingers in here if you want. But you who have an ear to hear what Jesus is saying to you, the king of glory, the king of the kingdom of God, he says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. That's what those who've come into the kingdom are commanded to do. I love this. Deuteronomy 29, verse 2 through 4 says, Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and all his, his land. In other words, in bringing them out of Egyptian bondage. He says, The great trials which your eyes have seen and those great signs and wonders. They saw God's hand. They saw him part the Red Sea. But then he says this to them. Moses says this to them. Yet to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. Let me tell you, that doesn't happen today. You can't enter into the kingdom of his beloved son without being given ears to hear. We have ears to hear, and so Jesus admonishes us. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. That's what the Messiah said in Isaiah 50. In the New Testament, Matthew eleven, fifteen says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Having ears to hear is a result of being born again. He's given you an ear to hear. We're so, you know, we are so interested in proving to people that God will never speak to you that I'm afraid that, I, well, because what we're saying is, this is the word of God, the Bible's the word of God, it's a completed revelation, And the normal way you hear God is through his word. But don't ever think God can't get to your ear. If he's given you ears to hear, he will speak to you. And here the Messiah says, he awakens me morning by morning. This is prophetic of Jesus when he's on earth in a human nature. Morning by morning, he awakens my ear to listen like a disciple. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In Romans 11, Paul says of the Jews who rejected Christ, he says, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, ears to hear not, down to this very day. Now, there's coming a day when he's going, that's going to be reversed, and their eyes are going to be open, their ears are going to be open, they're going to have ears to hear, and they're going to hear, and they're going to turn. And as I said in the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus keeps on saying, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So living in the kingdom is listening. It's listening. To the king, and you have to get into his word, and you have to be with his people, and you have to take in what he is telling you, what he's saying to you. 
Now, I love this in, in verse 39, you have a parable. Jesus always gives parables to explain how these things are applied to life, how we can apply these to life. And so listen to what he says. He's talking to disciples, members of the kingdom of God. And he says in verse 39, and he also spoke a parable to them. A blind man cannot lead a blind man, can he? Will they not both fall in a pit? In other words, I need regeneration. I need eyes to see and ears to hear in order to lead anybody. He says, we had a family uh, some years ago that went to Germany, a couple of families, and they picked up a hitchhiker, a guy who, in Germany who had just graduated from seminary, and he was showing him his Bible. He said, this is the first Bible I've ever owned. He just graduated. It was a graduation present. And they said, well, wait a minute, didn't you have to study the Bible in seminary? He says, no, we don't study the Bible. We study theology and theologians. But you don't have to go to that kind of seminary. You have a Bible, right? Is there anybody here who doesn't own a Bible? Raise your hand, I'll give you one. We all own Bibles, right? I've got about 25 of them, like many of you. And so I can come to the Word of God. He says, a blind man can't lead a blind man, can he? Verse 40, a pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. That's the goal of discipleship. We become like Jesus. It's sanctification. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not see, notice the log in your own eye? Can you picture this? The guy's got a telephone pole sticking out of his eye, and he says, hey, let me get that speck out of your eye. Now, what he's getting at is we have to grow in the kingdom. I have to grow so that I can be of any good to anybody in the kingdom. Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck that is in your eye when you yourselves do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. Jesus says, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. In other words, I have to walk as a one who's listening to the king in order to be of any good to you. And the same goes with you. He says, for there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor is there, a, nor on the other hand, a bad tree that produces good fruit. My heart's got to be changed. Uh, Steve Fernandes wrote a little book called years ago called... Uh, once saved, always changing. And what he was trying to get at was, God saves you for good when he saves you. He saves you for eternity. But he starts changing you, and that process never stops until you enter into his presence. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil, for his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Now what he's saying, it's a motivation for growing. Wait a minute, I'm a, I am a, a citizen of the kingdom of God. I've got a huge responsibility. That's what we should be saying to ourselves. I need to grow as a disciple so that the king can use me in the lives of other members of the kingdom of God. I'm going to stop there because I want to come back to this text and um, talk about these commandments specifically, what they mean.
because I've looked at the Greek, and so the Greek tells me what they really mean. It might surprise you, like give to whoever asks you. <laughs> give to whoever asks you. But if this is the king's, all we got to do is find out, is this the king's command? If it's the king's command, he will empower you to do that. Imagine. I always think of the rich young ruler, that he had no clue what Jesus was offering him. If, he, if Jesus were to say that to me today, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me, he would have entered into the most glorious life He would have been with the king of glory. He would have been with Jesus. He would have lived his life in the glory of the presence of Jesus Christ. And so when he commands us, we can can be absolutely confident. It's why it's called the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. He will empower you. He will fill your heart with joy in obeying him. You're not going to obey the commands of Jesus and say, I never should have done that. That was a big mistake. You'll never say that. Maybe you've had somebody give you some advice about life. You know, you should invest here. Put all your money in this right here. And then it goes to nothing. And you think, I should have never done that. You'll never get that kind of advice from Jesus. You'll never get those kind of commandments from Jesus. This is the king of glory. So we'll come back and look at these commandments and consider how we can walk in obedience to the commands of Christ, even when they're this radical, why they make sense in our context. Let me just pray in closing. Why don't you stand with me, and I'll close in prayer. Our Father, we we bow before you now. Uh, we, We thank you that you've brought us into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of your dear Son, and we are experiencing life in him. We thank you for all that you've given us, the Holy Spirit who lives in us, the Lord Jesus Christ who reigns in us. You've given us access to you, Father, that we can approach you and call you Abba, Father, my dear Father. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for manifesting your your sovereign grace in our lives, Father. And I pray as we leave this place, we'd be encouraged, not discouraged, but encouraged that we have a God who loves us this much. And that you've promised to be with us, to be actively with us and working in us and through us and on us. And so, Father, we pray today that we would find pleasure in walking with you, no matter what we're facing, no matter how we're grieving right now, no matter the, the difficulties we face right now, may we have the joy of knowing that we are in the kingdom of your beloved son, that he reigns over our lives. We pray that you would do this work in our hearts and lives, Father, for the glory of your son and for the good of your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.